Greater Manchester has a rich history of leading the country to new frontiers. And now there's a plan to do it again. New jobs, new homes, a new economy. But could the Places for Everyone scheme, the whole strategy, be at risk? This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello there and welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill with me, Daryl Morris. No Yoshi Herman this week, so the Mill's Jack Dalhanty is in the hot seat. Uh, but no substitute, Jack. You are, uh, frankly, my favourite. Don't tell oh. Yoshi, but you are my, my favourite. Thank you so much. How are you, sir? Welcome. Yeah, it's nice to be on here again. First time uh, this year. So I'm um, really excited. How are you? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Uh, we've got lots and lots to get into this week, and uh, we've got some good news for dogs on the Metrolink coming up. Also, Jack, I'm very keen to hear what happened when you spoke to Alan Francis, who is a head teacher in Oldham, but is now, probably better known now, as the uh, government's new social mobility advisor. He's the interim social mobility advisor, but a big role for him to be taking on. We'll hear what happened when you spoke to him shortly. Firstly, um, Jack, we need to start with a story about this scheme, Places for Everyone. Now, um, this is a very important story and a very important scheme, Jack, even if you haven't heard of it before. For those that haven't, could you explain Places for Everyone? Yeah, so Places for Everyone is essentially Greater Manchester's flagship plan um, for growth. So it's the kind of air of what some people may remember, other people, again, it was called the um, Greater Manchester Spatial Framework, and it was the kind of nightmare of all journalists who had to cover it, I think. But that fell apart, unfortunately, after Stockport pulled out over concerns that they were building on Greenbelt, too much Greenbelt building. And Places for Everyone is the remaining nine boroughs, essentially... um, coordinating their planning till around 2037. So it's a very big, all-encompassing plan to build however many thousands of homes that we'll need in Manchester going into the next um, decade. And it's a real test of what a lot of people might call the Greater Manchester model or the ability for all the boroughs to kind of act in a coordinated way and agree on a single plan. Right, so it's very big and it's very, very important really, isn't it, for for the future of Greater Manchester. Why are we talking about it this week? Because it it may be at risk because last month Michael Gove made a ministerial statement in which he relaxed government housing targets. So essentially what he said was from here on, or from there on, he wanted to make it so that local authorities um, decided how many houses they built. Um, in their areas, working with their communities to make these sort of decisions. Commentators at the time basically said, well, this is going to be high season for other councillors or um, community groups to try and bring that number down, to try and cut how much Greenbelt building is going on, because now, of course, the council can decide. Um, The problem with that in terms of places for everyone is that places for everyone's plan or the housing plan, is predicated on housing targets that weren't relaxed. So it was when places for everyone may slightly be at risk because of relaxed housing targets. So last month, Michael Gove made 
a ministerial statement proposing that the house building targets of individual communities are up to the local councils. That's all well and good, but under place when Places for Everyone was submitted, or when the plan was submitted last year, it would have been predicated on housing targets that weren't relaxed. So now, places like Oldham and Bury, where there's a lot of um, ire in the community around green uh, greenbelt building, will now be able to reduce the number of houses that they build, and therefore that could cause the places for everyone plan to collapse essentially if they pull out if one of the boroughs pull out because they want to build less houses and places for everyone is asking them to that will cause big problems for the plan okay so a potential domino effect then uh, i suppose that's um that's brewing i guess and, and sort of looming and, and, and look Help me out here, Jack, because Oldham Council sources say that as far as they know, they're not pulling out, despite the perhaps, the, you know, there might be uh, forces within within Oldham Council who, who want them to do so. You know, Barry said they've already dealt with this. They don't think it's going to be an electoral issue. The Places for Everyone official statement says that, and I'll read this for you, at the moment, nothing has changed. It's a ministerial statement. There is a consultation happening until the legislation changes. The planning inspectors will carry on. What's your hunch, Jack, about the security of its future? Well, no one to get too in the weeds, but essentially when Places for Everyone was drummed up and it was submitted, it was, as I said earlier, it was predicated on the plan that Greenbelt land in these boroughs would be released in order for Greater Manchester to hit housing targets. But those housing targets that that Greenbelt land would have needed to be released for are now obsolete. So anyone, any council that wants to make the case for building on Greenbelt land, we'll have to deal with councillors and community groups essentially saying, well, you have no reason to build on this land anymore because there is no longer the threat of that target because that target doesn't exist. You know, when I spoke to the Lib Dem leader for um, Oldham, whose name's Howard Sykes, he said, you know, previously the council has always maintained that it's been forced to use these targets by government rules. And now that it isn't, quote, why use them? So it's the way that councils could justify um, Greenbelt building before, they don't have what, you know, what one source in Barry described as that cover anymore. So I just, my personal hunch is I just don't see how going forward councils can convince, you know, um, anti-development councils, if that's what you want to call them, or uh, anti-greenbelt building groups that this needs to happen because they have no basically that solid basis that cover has just dissolved after if this becomes law so like you say it's um the consultation is still ongoing it was it's just a ministerial statement but should this stuff come to pass it, i just don't see how councils can convince individual stakeholders to carry on with a plan like places for everyone when they have no concrete um, reason to point to, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Okay, very interesting. And a story that we will watch very closely, uh, Jack, as we uh, we get a sense of what the key stakeholders in that story are going to do eventually. Um, while we're in Oldham, let's talk about the new social mobility advisor, Alan Francis, who has replaced uh, Catherine Burblesing, who is the outgoing 
um, and quite controversial, really, uh, former now social mobility advisor. She quit the job saying that she was sort of being asked too often about political issues, etc. Although she hasn't been backward in coming forward, has she, to give us her take on some big hot culture war issues. Um, anyway, Alan Francis, who is he, Jack? You met him. Yeah, we spoke uh, on Tuesday night. Um, he was on his way home from work. I was in the office and... We just sort of chatted through his plans for 2023. You know, he's not even a week into the job yet as interim chair of this commission, which is, for anyone who doesn't know, the Social Mobility Commission is essentially like a non-departmental commission who can give advice to ministers at request for any issues surrounding social mobility, so how to make social mobility better in, uh, in England. So... Yeah, as you were saying, he's taking this job after Catherine Burble-Singh um, quit last week. Again, over a kind of, her, she described it as like a notoriety as a, as a culture warrior. Francis obviously doesn't really give that impression. He's 57. He's worked in local government for a very long time. He's worked in regeneration schemes all across Greater Manchester. Um, mostly work in indie-proud communities, hence regeneration. And yeah, his views on social mobility kind of do run contra to the overwhelming narrative, which is like, when most people think of social mobility, they think of that story of like the kid who grew up on a council estate, worked very hard in school, got into Oxford and became a lawyer. That's when you think, oh, right, okay, so that... That's a, that's a really good example of someone being socially mobile, being able to rise through the ranks and that kind of thing. He doesn't really see it that same way. He thinks that social mobility is less about sending poor or disadvantaged kids to high-flying universities. It should be more about broadening out that opportunity. So instead of kind of pushing it through the narrow strait of uh, higher education, so like if you want to go into a prestigious position because of the way that the the education system works now you'll need high skills which will require going to a prestigious university and that kind of thing his point is that social mobility should just be you can improve your life regardless of what your big starting point is regardless of where your end point is so to i guess to sum it up is his philosophy is like if you want to be a plumber that's what you want to do if you want to become a plumber you should have the same opportunities and the same support as someone who has high ambitions to be, or, you know, quote-unquote high ambitions, to be a doctor or a lawyer. Okay. How interesting. Yeah, very interesting. All right. Um, uh, Alan Francis, who we, we may or may not hear more from, I suppose, uh, in the uh, in the coming weeks and months and years, uh, if he uh, perhaps gets the job full-time as the Social Mobility uh, uh, Board's chair. Let's move on, uh, Jack, to another story in Greater Manchester, which I think is really fascinating that has kind of national connections, because we're talking a lot about strikes at the moment, aren't we? People withholding their labour. Uh, at the University of Manchester, students have been withholding their payments, their rent payments, uh, in a in a sort of strike action, haven't they? What's been going on here? So, yeah, the, this um, strike action or rent strike is in response to cost of living pressures. And the organisers have been kind of moved to do this, but, you know, through hearing stories of students struggling to make ends meet after the paid rent. For example, The Guardian reported that uh, one student, I believe he was a history student, um, said he only had, after paying his rent, £200 of his maintenance loan left to last him four months, which obviously is quite a dire situation to be in. Students are talking about having to work virtually full-time hours in jobs while studying to make ends meet. 
So what they're looking to do is pressure the university into offering a 30% cut on monthly uh, monthly rent, um, plus a rebate for fees already paid. And similar action by students in 2020 who were essentially um, striking against their experience over the pandemic secured the same 30% rebate worth around £4 million. It was something that Molly Simpson actually covered um, for the mill at the time. So if you want to find that, that'll be in the archive somewhere as well. Yes, do. It was a really brilliant piece, wasn't it? Very, very interesting. And, and a kind of fascinating sort of glimpse into the frustrations, I guess, that uh, that students at Manchester University are University of Manchester are experiencing. Uh, Manchestermill.co.uk is where you go to read that piece and for a little bit more on that and also to hear from uh, Alan Francis as well, by the way, Manchestermill.co.uk. And Jack, um, let's talk about the Labour Party who are... Uh, they've made a bit of quite an interesting announcement. Shout out Chancellor Rachel Reeves in terms of local councils and their tax powers. Quite a few council leaders across Greater Manchester will have been listening very carefully to what Rachel Reeves had to say this week. What has she said? Yeah, so essentially she said that they won't give local authorities new tax raising powers if they win the next election, which is something that doesn't really go down well with lots of people, really. You know, when you talk about levelling up, the idea of local authorities being granted the ability to raise their own taxes or to have that kind of fiscal control is kind of uh, baked into the whole idea of levelling up. Like a lot of uh, pro-devolution think tanks will say, if you don't do that, you will not get levelling up. Um, But Reeves has said essentially that the tax burden is already too high as it is and that Labour would instead increase the spending power by targeting tax increases, well, no, targeted tax increases, should I say, and that would be mostly through closing tax loopholes. But again, it's not really something I could expect going down well with local authorities. Mm, it's interesting, that, isn't it? Because it's that, it's that, it's sort of that strange balanced Labour in at the moment, aren't they? But with carrying through their uh, clearly quite, um, you know, sort of big grand devolution uh, um, objectives, but also trying to sort of keep control of the narrative and, and make it not look like, you know, Labour are handing, basically having sort of tax rises tagged to Labour, which is they're in a big battle, aren't they, Labour at the moment, I suppose, with trying to appeal to the centre ground. Um, uh, a bit of conflict, perhaps, between the two places that they want to find themselves uh, there um, uh, in that story. Really interesting. And again, we'll keep an eye on it and come back to it. Okay, a couple of quick hits, uh, Jack, before we give you some recommendations for things to do. Um, this is a serious one. Let's talk about homelessness um, in the greater the, and, and, and sort of temporary accommodation in Greater Manchester because we've got some stats, haven't we? Yeah, so this is something that we covered extensively last summer where we really delved into the data of how it is that the number of households living in temporary accommodation in Manchester seems to just be on this kind of inexorable rise. It seems like something... Well, it is something that the council are really struggling with and the homeless directorate, who are part of the council, tasked with dealing with that, um, are finding quite hard. And new figures show that the number of households in temporary accommodation, so temporary accommodation is when you're homeless and you're essentially in this limbo between um, what would be essentially rough sleeping, being without home, and finding a new property that's kind of like your forever home or something more permanent like a social home. Um, and the number of households in temporary accommodation at the moment is up 30% on 2021 figures. So it's currently standing at 3,189 households are in these um, these temporary accommodations, which tend to be B&Bs or 
other alternatives, but broadly speaking, in, in our reporting, we found that the living standards in these places can be quite subpar. And, you know, the new figures have also found that Manchester City Council have opened 6,525 home, cases of homelessness, which is more than any other council in the UK. So it kind of shows that building on our reporting back in the summer, that things are still rising the same way that they were five years previously. This sort of tide hasn't been turned yet. Blimey, goodness me. Okay, and in better news uh, this week, Jack, victory for dogs on the Metrolink. Yes, canine commuters was what I tried to get in the newsletter, uh, but it got ed- <laughs> it got edited out, which I uh, you know don't blame me for that. But um, yeah, so th- there was a trial back last year. I think it was August until October, and it was a success. And it's set to this week. Uh, essentially, it's it's not actually been decided yet, but it's basically set in stone because MetroLink are already supporting it, as well as other transport uh, for Greater Manchester leaders supporting the council to allow dogs on trams. The next step, I suppose, would be letting bikes on trams, uh, which is something that a lot of people would lobby for, but it's whether or not we'll get that far. Yeah, bikes do take up quite a lot of space, though, don't they? They do. You would kind of need, like, a separate section of the tram for people with bikes, in my imagination. Yeah, that would that's a good idea actually, isn't it? That would be sort of like a bike rack or something yeah. at one end of the uh, of the tram, um, which I would be very much supportive of, definitely. Um, um, because they have those on trains. When I get the uh, the Avanti train down to London regularly, they've got uh, they've got they've got a section. I mean, I know it's a very different experience and a very different uh, <laughs> very yeah. different setup than than a tram, but it's uh, but they do have a big bike rack, and I think that works wonders for lots of people. Uh, speaking of trains as well, um, Jack, we have another week and another round of cancellations and issues and problems to talk about this because of maintenance work at piccadilly what's being affected when yeah i was about to say you won't be getting that avanti train you won't be getting on the avanti train with your bike this sunday because it is every service from piccadilly is cancelled for roof repairs so that's really worth remembering if you do plan on traveling this weekend everything out of piccadilly is not going out of piccadilly so keep that in mind hooray Great. Yay. I suppose these things have to be done, don't they? I suppose that's better than uh, better than the other reasons. <laughs> that yeah. <we've> had recently, <laughs> I guess. Um, okay. Also, just a bit of a nod, by the way. While we're talking about trams and transport, if you get the tram into Manchester from the Altrincham direction, you might have seen this story that that very famous Taylor Swift cardboard cutout uh, has been in the news since our last recording. Because the person who owns the Taylor Swift cardboard cutout is leaving the flat, right? So, a, have you seen this, Jack? There's a cardboard cutout of Taylor Swift sort of propped up in a window and it's become it kind of iconic scares the life out of me every time i get the tram <laughs> i just always look out the window and i'm like what's that person doing and it's actually just taylor um so yeah. yes it is a bit creepy but anyway the good news is that the person who owns the flat and is selling the flat uh, has said that a lot of the people that sort of pr- the sort of prospective buyers have committed to keeping the taylor swift cardboard cut out yeah Whether that's something they will regret when they get in i don't know uh, yeah. But they've uh, they've decided that they're going to keep it. Uh, or, or several have committed, so hopefully uh, the Taylor Swift cardboard cutout will remain in place and will continue to creep Jack out on his commutes <laughs> into the city centre. Um, all right, Jack, uh, let's take us take us into where you are right now, my friend, into the mill uh, mill newsroom. What's going on? What are you working on? Yeah, so we are getting together today, so Thursday's newsletter, which will be out today alongside this podcast. Um, pulling that together at the minute molly's working on a really interesting piece but again i won't spoil it because you're about to read it at some point today so keep your eye out for that and yoshi's working on a weekend read this week about you will have seen him asking about it on twitter for any kind of shout outs or 
direction. He's writing about the kind of old and new Ancoats where you kind of have this, um, I hate I hate the phrase fault line, but I'm going to say fault line, between the very developed and new section of Ancoats and the area that still sort of remains as it was um, before the big New Islingtonification of the area. Okay, interesting. So we we'll look forward to that. Manchester, yeah, very much so. ManchesterMill.co.uk is where you go to uh, get those in your inbox. We also give you uh, something to do around Greater Manchester every week, don't we, Jack? So what's on your radar for something to do out and about in the next couple of days? It's not anything that new. It's not that exciting, but I'm going to go to the comedy store after work tomorrow because I've never been. Um, and obviously I've been to the Frog and Bucket many times, as will be attested in one very unspeakable article that I had to write where I had to become a stand-up comedian and do a show there but also just because I'm interested in kind of local comedy I don't know why I think since doing that piece I've become more interested and I like going to watch other people at open mics I guess it's the experience of knowing how awful it is you can kind of uh, feed on it if you're if you're someone like me yeah a comedy store is always a good night always a lot of fun the comedy store and especially in January it's a good January thing to do when there's not much else going on actually yeah sure uh, comedy store um, okay, uh, my nod for the week ahead is uh, an Inspector Calls. That's on at the Lowry until Saturday. I had a few hours to kill last night, uh, so I tried to get some tickets, but I couldn't get in. It was absolutely chock-a-block. It was sold out. Uh, there are a couple of tickets remaining for some shows between now and Saturday, so if you fancy it over the weekend, uh, really worth checking out. Uh, also starting on Saturday is an exhibition at the uh, Football Museum that's been commissioned by Eric Cantona called From Moss Side to Marseille. The Art of Michael Brown and Eric Cantona. Michael Brown being the artist who's pulled it together. Um, and um, uh, and basically it sort of charts, uh, I guess sort of like uh, sort of social issues through football and uh, some really iconic footballers. I think there's, Maradona gets a lot of uh, attention in it as well. who have gone from kind of quite humble backgrounds, working class backgrounds, to great riches and great success. Um, and what that can tell us about social mobility and various other things. That's one at the Football Museum at uh, Urbis in the centre of Manchester, Moss Side to Marseille. And also a quick nod for Liam Frey as well, uh, who on Friday night is doing a gig at the O2, the Ritz, uh, for the Mayor's Bed Every Night scheme. Uh, for the Mayor's Charity. Uh, that was announced a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? Liam Frey from the Cortinas doing a gig Friday night at the Ritz if you fancy getting some tickets to that and helping out a good cause. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back in your podcast feed every Thursday with quality journalism from the city that you love. And you can get more of that in your inbox. Manchestermill.co.uk is where you go to subscribe. But for now, Jack, thank you. Thanks. See you next week.